Um, so today we are continuing in Luke. We are going to be in Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. And we're talking about communion. Um, so you can go ahead and grab, grab your Bibles and flip to Luke 22. If you don't have one, there's one, there should be one close to you in one of the seats, under the seats. Feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible home with you. Um, and this is, this is the passage where Jesus institutes, is a fancy word we use, the Lord's Supper, um, communion. And communion is kind of weird. Um, if you didn't grow up in the church, that may be obvious to you. For those of us who grew up in the church, maybe that's not so obvious. But communion is a very strange thing that we do, right? Um, you know, if, you're, if you've ever maybe brought someone to church for the first time, and you're having communion that Sunday, you know, you could just try next time leaning over to them as we get to that portion of the service and just whisper like, hey, this is, this is the blood drinking ritual that we do. I'll explain later. You know, it's, it's strange, right? It's, it's okay for it to be strange. It should, it should feel strange. Um, I think uh, for us to really understand communion, we need to recover some of the, some of the strangeness of it, some of the weirdness of it. Um, in the early church, uh, you almost, you probably were not going to be persecuted or cast away from your social group because you, you were telling people, you know, God forgave me of my sins. That probably was not going to get you in much social trouble. Um, you would get in trouble for claiming that Jesus is Lord over Caesar. That's controversial. But you'd also get in trouble because people thought you were a part of this weird cult where you ate people and where you married your brothers and sisters, right? In the early church, we, they, you know, and in the Bible, we refer to each other as brother and sister. And what we mean by that is that we're family in Christ. Um, and then obviously, communion is this thing that we do where we say, this is, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, take this, eat it, drink it. But from the outside, you can see how that would sound pretty weird, right? Um, so, if someone was inclined to be anti-Christian, they might think, oh, is that's that weird place where they like, they eat this guy, Jesus, who they said was dead and now he's come back to life. Um, and they all marry each other even though they're related, you know. Um, so obviously we know that, we, if you've been in church, you know that it's not quite as weird as that might sound. But it is strange, right? And I'm hoping that as we look at this passage where Jesus um, teaches his disciples what communion means and he gives his disciple communion for the first time, that we can understand what it means, but also understand how weird it is in a way. Um, so it's the, the, the thing that we're talking about, again, is communion. You also maybe heard me say the Lord's Supper. It's also called the Eucharist. Eucharist is just a Greek word that means thanksgiving because Jesus thanks God before he breaks the bread and distributes it. Um, and it, it's maybe impossible to overstate the significance of communion for the Christian faith. Uh, though it can, and it definitely has been distorted at different times in the church, um, we may feel inclined to downplay it in our attempts to avoid some of the past abuses and idolatries that have been associated with it in different sections of the church in history. But the reason these distortions caused the division and the hostility in the history of the church, it's not because the church was distracted by things that weren't important or didn't matter. Like they were so worked up about communion, what was the big deal? No, um, it's because everybody knew how important this practice was and how important it was to at least get in the ballpark of getting it right. And what Jesus gives the church in communion 
as we'll see, is crucially important. Um, one pastor put it this way, within communion, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history, to the nature of God and to the nature of man, to the mystery of the world, which is Christ. Uh, Martin Luther wrote that the Lord's Supper is nothing less than the gospel. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ, to be united to Jesus, to be in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is a communion with, a participation in, a sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus. And so today, um, we're going to just barely scratch the surface um, of what this means. Um, and part of its meaning is going to be seen not just in what it is and what it represents, but who it is for. And what we'll see, spoiler alert, um, is that communion is for those who've betrayed Christ. And that's just to say that it's for all of us. So let's see how Luke shows us this. Um, again, we're in Luke 22. Um, I'll read the passage starting in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. <clears throat> so as the crucifixion approaches... Luke reminds us that it's the holidays, it's the holiday season, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Um, Passover was immediately followed by what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were so connected that Passover sometimes just referred to the whole season of including unleavened bread, kind of like how we sometimes say Easter when we're talking about the death and resurrection, the whole, the whole uh, Holy Week and all that. Um, so this was Israel's biggest holiday because the Exodus was the central act of God's rescue in their history. Rescue from death and slavery in Egypt, and then the Exodus journey in the wilderness. Um, that was, um, one commentator puts it like this, 
basically like the 4th of July and Thanksgiving all combined into one, basically one week. So hundreds of thousands of people traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, or these feasts rather. Um, Different scholars have different kind of estimates, but some estimate that um, with the pilgrims, the city grew by 150,000 people, probably more. Um, There's an ancient historian named Josephus, and he claims that it grew to over 2 million during this festival time. So this is important first because um, it presents a problem for the schemes of the evil leaders who are trying to kill Jesus. They don't want to cause a big stir, and they know that many of the people, if not most of the people, support Jesus. Luke's told us several times that they've been kind of in the shadows, reluctant to make a move because they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the ruckus that it would cause. Um, And then they might also be hesitant to cause a big riot or something because that could invite the Romans to crack down on them for disturbing the peace and make their lives a lot more difficult. And so this, um, this leads right into the literally satanic plot that enables the leadership to take, take an opportunity to capture Jesus and kill him. And so um, the next verses you see um, what is really basically a cosmic kind of spiritual chess match between Satan and his schemes um, and his followers and Jesus and his followers. So Satan's plotting, and Jesus is making his own plans and preparations to make sure that things go the way that he wants them to. Um, And we saw this same, Jesus is very careful, this same planning that Jesus made when he was entering into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. Um, So let's look at this. Uh, In verse 3 again, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. And then he goes away, he talks with the chief priests and the officers about how, they can betray, how he can help them betray Jesus. They are very excited, they give him some money for this, and then Judas now looks for this opportunity. Um, if you remember way back in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke told us that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And that time has come now in Luke 22. Um, And this is the only place where we see language quite like this, of of Satan entering into somebody. Judas is now going to be directed by this evil completely, um, and he's going to make this deal with leadership, betraying Jesus with inside information. Um, Interestingly, he's offered money to do this. Um, We we learn elsewhere that's 30 pieces of silver. And we know that, um, if you remember, one of Jesus' main critiques of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders was that they were greedy money lovers. So Judas um, kind of has found his, found his people, right? He's at home now. Um, uh, we, were, we were told in John's gospel that Judas had probably volunteered to be in charge of the money bag that the disciples carried around and that he would kind of help himself as they were traveling around. So this is not a new problem for Judas. Um, now, it's interesting that um, evil, evil things happening in the world, they're not always driven by this kind of great diabolical ideology or plan. Sometimes it's just as simple as greed. Um, There's, for Judas, I think, there's probably many factors, but one of them is he's gonna make make a quick buck, right? I'm sure he doesn't support Jesus, um, but you know, there doesn't have to be this master plot in Judas's mind um, for, for this to go down. But of course, Satan, he does have this bigger goal to derail God's plan, and he uses Judas's greed to accomplish his goals. And so Jesus, he knows this, and that's why he makes his own plan to ensure that his betrayal and arrest doesn't happen before he can eat the Passover with his disciples. And we're going to see why that's so important to him soon. 
So he sends Peter and John, you know, his top two guys, kind of, you know, they're kind of like the, they, you know, they wouldn't say this. They're going to argue in a little bit about who's the best of them. But Peter and John are often highlighted um, as closest to Jesus. And so he sends them. He's keeping this kind of low key. Um, and and he, it seems to indicate that not even the other disciples know where they're going to have this Passover meal. And he doesn't want Judas or the other religious leaders to know their movements before it's time for the, for the plan to actually go down. So, um, so we see, in spite of the fact that terrible things are about to happen, this isn't a Jesus who is caught off guard or out of control. Um, he knows what he's doing, and he's making sure that he can accomplish his objectives before he's taken. And then Judas will be at this feast, and then Judas will kind of realize what the game plan is, and Luke doesn't actually mention him leaving, but he drops out of the narrative because Judas slips out of the room to go bring the religious leaders to get Jesus. And so following these kind of battle preparations on both sides, this planning, this building tension, um, we come to the significance of Jesus' final moments, what Jesus has been earnestly desiring to do. Um, in verse 14, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So why, why does Jesus, why is he longing to have this meal with his disciples? Well, I think one of the big reasons is that he wants his disciples to have the resources to understand what his suffering is, means and to make that a part of who they are as a community following Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus, um, Luke has told us this directly, and he's implied it all over the place throughout his gospel, is about to go through what he calls his exodus. Um, and this brings a new exodus for his people. So the old exodus is a shadow of this new Jesus exodus, this better exodus. And we can't understand Jesus without knowing about these patterns that are set up in the Old Testament in the first exodus with Moses um, leading Israel out of slavery. We can't understand what Jesus is doing. We can't understand communion if we don't know something about Egypt and slavery and blood and lambs and bread, which is just to say that you can't understand Jesus if you don't know Israel's story. So Jesus says, that story, that was and it is all about me. And he takes these feasts that were surrounding this central event of God's rescue of Israel and he applies them to himself. So what, what are these two feasts that Luke mentions twice here, several times? And what do they remember? What did they represent? Well, the two feasts mentioned, again, are Passover and unleavened bread. And the Passover was a feast that it remembered God sparing Israel in his judgment on Egypt. So Israel had gone into slavery for some 400 years. And then Exodus, pa Passover, is God's great act of rescuing them out of that slavery. He sends a plague at the end of a series of plagues that kills all the firstborn in Egypt. But those who followed Moses and had faith in God and listened to what Moses told them to do, they spread the blood of the lamb blood of a lamb that they sacrificed on their door, which marked themselves as followers of God. So these houses, God's judgment passed over, and their firstborn were spared. And the people of Israel, um, they were told to do this, but they celebrated a meal every year to remember how God had judged their enemies, rescued them, made them his own people. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast that remembered how Israel had left so quickly 
when God judged the firstborn of Egypt and the Pharaoh finally said, all right, get out of here. They left so quickly that they didn't have time to cook leavened bread or bread that had sourdough starter and it needed time to develop. And so during this, this feast, people would, um, every year in their houses, they would remove their old starter, their old sourdough starter, and eat food without any leavening. Now if you're a, it's kind of trendy now, but if you're a sourdough person, you know how painful it is when you lose your starter. Um, this happened to us, what was it, maybe a year ago, or six months ago, and we've been developing it for like seven years. And on accident, we lost it. But um, so this, this, you know, this is like restart, fresh, fresh batch of sourdough starter for your bread making. Um, and so this was not only to reenact their flight into the wilderness, the hasty flight, but it represented this commitment and recommitment every year to purge out what's called the old leaven, the old sourdough starter that had been passed from loaf to loaf all year long. And that um, represented sin. Uh, and Jesus picks this up and he speaks of, if you remember, the leaven of the Pharisees, which he calls hypocrisy. And just like Israel had to abandon the corrupting influences of Egypt, God's people needed to remove any lingering sin and influences that would draw them away from God. So, um, in, in short, if Passover celebrated God getting Israel out of Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about the need to get Egypt out of Israel, to remove those negative cultural religious influences of Egypt after they had physically left the land. And so it's important, you know, we, we often just think of the Passover element, but Luke highlights the Feast of Unleavened Bread um, a couple times in this passage because he wants us to make all those connections to what Jesus is doing. And Jesus connects these things with his death and his resurrection by celebrating them with his disciples um, and also defining them and in some ways adapting them in, terms of, in the terms of what he's about to do. So look at, look at what Jesus does with his disciples in verse 17. He took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So as far as we know, in this Passover meal that they were celebrating, there were four cups of wine involved in the kind of traditional Passover meal. Um, two of them are mentioned here. It's likely that the first cup that Jesus takes in this story is actually the second cup of the meal, which is called the cup of redemption. And that was poured before they would then rehearse the whole Exodus story as a family or as a, as a broader community. Um, and then that rehearsal of the story was followed by the main meal. And then after that meal, there was a third cup, which is the second one that Jesus refers to, which is called the cup of blessing. So Jesus, he distributes this bread and wine to his disciples, which that would not have been normal. Um, normally everyone would have their own cup. But so here Jesus is not afraid to tweak some things um, by saying, here, take, take of my cup and distribute it amongst yourselves. Take of my bread and distribute it amongst yourselves. And he tells them that they are his body given for them, his blood poured out for them a covenant in his blood. So this language of the blood of the covenant, this is um, basically quoting from uh, where Moses in Exodus 32, confirming God's covenant with Israel, he, uh, he sacrifices some animals and he saves half the blood and then the rest of the blood he puts in a big bowl 
and uh, he throws it on all of them. So um, just be thankful that Jesus uh, made some of these types of adjustments because otherwise you, when you come to church, you know, if you do it every week or if we do it once a month, you would have some, somebody in front just sloshing wine and grape juice all over you. Um, so fortunately, Jesus lets us drink it and he doesn't make us throw it on each other. Um, but Jesus, what he's doing here is he's creating a new people with his own body and blood. And he's telling them to continue to celebrate this ritual, to continue to renew this covenant, this relationship with God and his people, to reconfirm and to recommit to that when they gather for worship. And that's why this meal is so critical for Jesus, because it is really the central ongoing ritual of Christians, his followers, where we celebrate the gospel, where we're united around this good news that he died for us, um, to set us free, and he rose from death to give us life. So Jesus, he longs to have this meal with his disciples so that he can make these connections and give them this ritual to perform that'll be the centerpiece of Christian worship. But the teaching, if you'll notice, it ends, it really began, and it ends on kind of an ominous note. So this is like the part of the dinner party where Someone kind of is like, so who'd you guys vote for? And then, you know, it was all fun and games, and now it's just awkward and quiet, and everyone's deciding if, if you can change the subject tactfully. Right? So everyone goes silent for a moment when Jesus says, when he says this, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes it is as, been, as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. So this could be a really nice meal, right? Enjoying each other. Hey, I love you guys. Here, eat this, drink this. But no, he wants them to be, he wants them to recognize that a betrayer is in their midst. This was, excuse me, this is a question that came to my mind immediately when I read this passage and I was getting prepared for it is, why is, why is the Last Supper so closely connected to betrayal? And why is this intimate meal um, intertwined with Judas's betrayal and these warnings of Jesus? The, this feast, it's framed at the beginning, we saw by the plotting of Judas, and at the end by Jesus' warning against Judas. Um, and he's, later on, he's going to predict Peter's denial of him a few verses later. So what does Luke want us to see here? And this connects to another question that I had. Maybe you had to. Um, which is, why does Satan enter Judas if he knows that it's going to lead to his own defeat? Now, it's kind of speculative as to what we know Satan does or doesn't know, but it's possible he doesn't know the power of the resurrection. But it seems hard to believe that Satan doesn't understand how these prophecies of, of redemption through sacrifice, that, he didn't, that, weren't, that wasn't on his radar, that he wasn't making those connections. So I was, as I was studying this passage, I came across a suggestion by one, one Bible commentator that I think it's to the purpose of Jesus um, turning Judas against him. Right? Satan had already tempted Jesus to ascend to power in some other way. He, said, he told him, worship me and I will give you my kingdom, which at that time he had dominion over kingdoms of the earth. And in some ways, this one final powerful temptation is not to get to power by some other way than suffering, 
but it's to just give up on the whole mission. The idea here is that these people are just not worth it. They will all betray you in some way or another, just like Judas. You've given your life to this man, and he's selling you. What's more, um, and we'll see this in the rest of the story as we're approaching the crucifixion, Judas is not the only one who betrays Jesus. We think of him like that. And what he does is definitely distinct and unique in important ways. But all of his disciples leave him. And Peter not only leaves him when the chips are down and the guards are coming, but he denies repeatedly that he knows who Jesus is while Jesus is on trial, close enough for him to see Jesus. Right? Jesus, Peter denies him three times, and Jesus will turn, and he looks at Jesus after the third denial. And then Luke tells us that Peter will weep bitterly. So Jesus, in these verses, he's speaking directly of Judas. He says, the hand of the one who betrays me. But the irony of the disciples then going to debate, which one of us is going to be? Is it you? Is it you? Are you, are you going to betray Jesus? You know, the irony and the tragedy is that in the end, they all betray him. And this gets to, you know, in some ways, this kind of a little a fun detail, the significance of Judas's name. Judas is just a version of Judah. I mean, in the context of this region, Judea, it's basically like his name being American. So there's a critical difference between Judas and the others, but there's a similarity too. And Judas, in some ways, represents every man. They all turn away from Jesus. And this is where the power of Christ's death, symbolized in communion, is shown. The Passover celebration alongside these betrayal warnings and plans, it highlights that Jesus died for traitors. And he gives a feast for betrayers like his disciples and like all of us. And this is, this is challenging. Um, you could think of you know, movies or books that you've enjoyed and there's, there, in some, there's that central, that, that plot turning point where the person that they thought was on their side turns against them, turns out to be somebody who they, who they couldn't, shouldn't and couldn't have trusted this whole time. Um, for some reason, the two movies that came to mind were Braveheart and uh, Frozen, which I hate that movie. <laughs> I'm sorry if there's no little girl. Oh, there's a few, maybe, but I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, in Braveheart, he's leading this re you know, resistance and rebellion. And Robert the Bruce is this noble, this Scottish noble, who's supposed to be backing him up in this really critical battle. And then he shows up, they're ready to go, and Robert the Bruce takes his whole army and just walks away, um, and then leaves uh, Mel Gibson, William Wallace's army to just get slaughtered. And that moment that, that you feel there, like, ah, oh, you, you, you're so mad at that guy, right? Or in Frozen, when she's like dating that guy, and then he turns out to be, he, he betrays her, and he's like, never really loved her if you've seen Frozen. But those, you know, which I'm sure for a young girl, that's just as heartbreaking as um, William Wallace's betrayal. But um, these betrayal scenes, they get to us, right? Right? And this is even, you know, in our culture, um, we don't, we've been getting rid of many of our older values, but the value of loyalty is still pretty strong, right? Even you listen to pop songs, rap songs, like loyalty, like we can, we can kind of do whatever we want, but, but don't break my trust. Don't cheat on me, be loyal. Loyalty, it's, it's deep, it's crucial. Um, and it speaks to this, this real darkness that even our world is unwilling to look over. 
Um, the other, there's three movies actually that came to mind. The other one is, um, it's a movie that's based on a book um, called Silence by Shushaku Endo. Um, it's, a, it's a movie about um, the Japanese persecution in the 16th century, or 17th century. Um, it's, a, it's a very rough movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it um, to everybody. And the ending is a little questionable, but there's some really powerful scenes in that movie of the sacrifices that the Japanese Christians made to not deny Christ. Um, there was a brutal uh, persecution during that time sponsored by the state where they would go around and get people to um, deny Christ, to step on images of Jesus, to spit on crosses, and if they didn't, they would kill them. And so um, in this movie, it shows several examples of, of really Christians standing firm in their faith, Christians dying for their faith, um, priests coming and supporting those Christians in standing firm for their faith. But there's one character in, the, in that movie um, that you kind of hate at first. Um, he's, he's this Japanese Christian who he did, not, he d- he did deny Jesus, and then um, his family di- died because they did not deny Jesus. Um, and kind of the plot of this movie is that these priests are going to Japan to go see this priest that they've heard has rejected Jesus. And they take this guy, his name is Kichijiro, um, and they take him with them as their guide. And he's kind of this wreck of a man. He's, he's kind of drunk all the time. He feels terrible about denying Christ, um, but he agrees to go with them and help them kind of navigate the land and find these underground churches so they can support them. And throughout the movie, Kichichiro, he, he repeatedly denies Christ, right? The authorities come around and they say, you know, step on this image or we'll kill you. He steps on the image and runs away. They come around and they say, you know, spit on this cross or we'll kill you. He spits on the cross and then he runs away. Um, but each time he returns to, the, to one of the characters, the main character, the priest, sobbing in tears. He says, forgive me, forgive me. I wish I was born in a different time. I'm not strong enough, but forgive me. And each time the priest says, you know, you're forgiven. But throughout the movie, the priest kind of starts to grow resentful towards him. He's like, why, are you, why do you keep screwing up? You know, why do you keep doing this? Your, your family, your friends, they're not doing this. They're dying for it. Why are you, why are you like this? In the end, um, this character, Kichichiro, he actually betrays the priest to the authorities and leads to the priest's arrest. But every time he always comes back, the final time is in jail with the priest. He comes back and says, forgive me, forgive me, I've sinned. And that character, at the end of the movie, you, you're really angry with him. But as I've reflected on it more, um, I think it's right to see him as the way that we are so often, right? In some ways, he reflects the Christian life, where we repeatedly deny Christ in little ways. Um, and not only is it difficult for us to see ourselves in him, I think it's even more difficult for us to forgive the people in our lives, maybe, that reflect that, that show that difficulty in remaining true to Christ in spite of difficulty and persecution and whatever. Right? This is betrayal. It's, it's difficult. Treachery. Treason. And when we see the word trespass or transgression in the Bible, you know, we just prayed it, 
forgive us our trespasses. This highlights the aspect of sin that is this personal betrayal, this disloyalty, this breaking of trust. Jesus' death, his blood, covers us for all of our treachery, for all of our sins, for the ways that we betray him, the way that we betray people that we love. The gospel message, and this is highlighted here in Luke, is that there is no betrayal that is too great for the blood of Christ to cover. This is good news. But it is only good news for those who are willing to be numbered among the traitors. Right, you might not ever have a chance to say literally um, to somebody, I don't follow Jesus, you know, under fear of persecution. But we enact our own little tiny treasons every day. Right? Each time we know what we ought to do, but choose not to do it. Or we know what we shouldn't do, but we do it anyways. And it's only the humble who are willing to admit and recognize this about themselves. To say, either I'm just as bad as the worst of them, or I would be if it weren't for God's grace. And that's, that's who Jesus invites to the table, is the humble who say, I need your life. I need your blood. So what does communion mean for us today? And what are we doing when we gather at the table? It's a major oversight on my part. I should have asked if we could actually have communion today. But just remember all this for next week or the week after. I, don't know, I think it's two weeks from now. Um, what does it mean for us today when we take communion? Well, in keeping with the Passover connection, we're thanking God that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed, that he laid down his own life for our betrayal, for our sins. We remember how God rescued us from slavery to sin and death by his own blood, uniting us to him, uniting us to one another in the church. But we don't just remember that. We don't just look at the bread and the wine. We eat it. We drink it. And this gets to a powerful reality of what communion is. It is eating and drinking Jesus, though not literally, right? It doesn't... Um, the Catholic doctrine, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine, is that it actually transforms into Jesus' flesh and blood. We don't believe that. But it is an act that brings us the life of Jesus' broken body and shed blood by the power of God's Spirit. Um, so, you know, many Protestant theologians have, have put it this way, that we feed spiritually on Jesus. So he dies to cover us and to forgive us, but he also dies to give us life. Eating and drinking you know, literally, regular eating and drinking, are acts of taking in life into yourself. So as we eat and drink Jesus' body and blood, we're symbolically re receiving Jesus' life. And this is a way that we abide in him and he in us. Right? One of the central ways that God changes us is not by just explaining ideas to us, but by inviting us to do things. When he wanted to show his disciples what his death meant, he gave them this ceremony to participate in and to repeat and this might be an aspect of community that you haven't thought about quite as much, God giving us his life. But really, this just reflects the so that part of the whole salvation picture. Right? God rescues us so that he can give us life. God forgives us so that we can be brought near. Jesus dies and rises so that he can ascend and give us his spirit. And he sends his spirit so that he can be with us and in us and we can share his life in all of our lives, but in a unique way in communion, in the Lord's Supper. 
And just as Passover leads right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, communion leads to renewal of our lives. Uh, it's a cleansing of the old leaven, a repentance from, uh, a removal of lingering sin in our lives. Um, Paul draws these two things closely together in 1 Corinthians 5 when he writes, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So because of Passover, because of the blood that forgives the worst of us, we then cleanse out what's remaining of death in us as we receive Jesus' life. So you can ask yourself one or both of these questions, or a few of these questions. Where do you need to be reassured that your failures are covered by his blood? Maybe you feel like the kichichiro, that you just right now you're in a season where you're just struggling and you're returning to him for mercy, and he gives it. Where do you need to accept this invitation to humble yourself and repent in the first place? Maybe you don't think you're that bad. Maybe you don't think you're like a traitor, someone who would betray Christ. Or this might be harder for you, but where do you need to grow in grace for others who seem to be too far gone? Right? Would you forgive Peter if you were one of the other disciples? And where do you need to cleanse the old leaven to rid yourself of what's inconsistent with the life of Jesus, with the life that Jesus has given you and gives us through his body and through his blood? So to summarize, what is communion? What is this strange ritual that we practice where we eat and drink a person? Well, communion is Jesus holding a feast for his people on the basis of his own death and life so that we have life together in him. And communion is Jesus holding a feast for his people on the basis of his death and life so that we can have life together in him. And that's why we do it over and over again. Right, communion is Jesus' ongoing life-giving work in us, in our community. It's our ongoing renewal and commitment to Jesus, to his church, to his body. And perhaps scandalously, it's a meal that's for everyone who turns to faith in Jesus, even the worst of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your mercy this morning. God, that... Um, that you cover our sins with your blood, that you broke your body and your blood for us to give us life and forgiveness, to pass over our sins and to bring us into the light and into life. God, I ask that you would give us a deeper understanding of what the Lord's Supper means in our lives and that it would become um, a more and more joyful thing as we partake in it. God, I ask that you would give us grace and mercy for others, maybe others that we have a hard time forgiving, and know that you've forgiven worse and you've forgiven us. So I ask that you would, by your spirit, you take up this word, you'd use it to change our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.